Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the executive director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen, or perhaps even a recording of Henry himself. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and teachings of Henry Nouwen and remind each listener that they're a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of introducing Sister Simone Campbell. This is a woman who can best be described as compassionate conviction in action. She's a real champion for the cause of peace and justice. As executive director for Network, Sister Simone is well known for the nuns on the bus action that she and her sisters initiated in 2012. I wanted you to meet this feisty and inspiring nun who brings moral authority rooted in her love of Jesus and her dependence on the Holy Spirit. Sister Simone Campbell is a clear and compelling voice for social and economic justice. Sister Simone, I've read both A Nun on the Bus and your new book, Hunger for Hope. I learned from these two books a bit about the journey you have been on. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me why you became a nun? <laughs> well, back in, a, it sort of feels like a million years ago. Actually, I was fairly young. I was after my freshman year of college, I joined my religious community because I was eager to get on about justice. And it's more complicated than just um, joining the community because so much of my care and concern were focused on civil rights, on just the social justice at the time. I was taught by this amazing group of Immaculate Heart Sisters in Southern California. And I watched with my sister Katie on television, we watched the you know, civil rights movement in the 50s and early 60s. And for me, listening to Dr. King, knowing that um, for me, Christianity, for Jesus's message and justice always went together. And then my religious community, we're the Sisters of Social Service. So we're all about engaging in social change. And it was just such a good fit. But after my freshman year of college, where I was really fed up with being in the classroom and just wanting to get on with it, just do it, um, I ended up joining my community and been a part of it ever since, more than 50 years. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I loved learning about the charism of your community, of the Sisters of Social Service, uh, and, and I hear it over and over throughout your books, Come Holy Spirit, a real sense of, uh, of an acute listening longing for and and expecting the holy spirit to lead and to guide absolutely yeah that has that always been part of your life well i think without knowing it it was before i joined the community but the community gave me words for it because we are dedicated to the holy spirit the it's all about the living the the pentecost moment pentecost is our big communal feast and it's all about living the spirit being sent out into the streets, which is what happened on Pentecost. And that it, uh, the apostles were communally sent out in groups of two or more together. And 
that's um, how we see the work of the Spirit among us to make the gospel live now. That's our, that's our duty and our job. But it requires um, some intense listening, both to people, but also in the silence, a contemplative listening in prayer to where are we being led? What's the next step? How do we move? And um, I think always for me, there was some sense of that, but I don't think I, as a young person, I don't think I had words to articulate it. Um, and then my community gave me ways to talk about it and to share the experience with my sisters, which was a, a, quite a good sense of coming home. I, I read this line in, in, in your book, My Path Was More Organic than dramatic. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I love reading biographies. And in a way, there's a lot of biography within these books that tell me about a journey that you went on. You ended up uh, becoming a lawyer. And tell us a little bit about why and and what was achieved in that. Well, okay, so most of my sisters are social workers. And I'm, I'm not I'm not a good social worker and I'm not patient enough to have people have their <laughs> discoveries and work with groups and all that. I want to organize stuff and get stuff done. And um, when I was a young sister in Portland, Oregon, I was a volunteer as uh, on the side. We were doing community organizing and went down to Salem, the state capital, to testify about the needs for tenants' rights legislation. And some curmudgeon of a legislator I thought he was probably older than God. He's probably younger than I am now. But anyway, <laughs> as a young person, I thought he was really old. And uh, this legislator asked us about, well, what about the covenant of something or another? And I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I went home and I told our sisters that I lived with, I said, oh, I got to go to law school. I, I just have to go to law school because I wanted to do public policy. I was, I, my imagination was captured by that. I really wanted to do systemic change. And, uh, so one of the sisters that I lived with, a good friend of mine, she says, well, Simone, none of our sisters have gone to law school. And she, I found out just a year or so ago, she was really worried that I'd get a no and I'd be really disappointed. So she didn't want to get my hopes up. But um, the the result was because of her saying, oh, I don't know, Simone, I wrote this whole kind of my first brief about why I go to law school, how at the intersection of justice. Um, and the gospel. And you have to know that the foundress of our religious community, Margaret Schlachta, was the first woman in the Hungarian parliament uh, when she was the head of our community back in the 1920s. So um, we have politics and political engagement in our bones. But this was a, um, a new step for us in the U.S. And eventually I got the community's approval to go to law school. So I went to law school to do public policy, but then in the process discovered that I liked practicing law and ended up um, starting a low-cost legal service center to serve the needs of the working poor in Oakland, California, um, the, and ended up doing most of the high-conflict, low-income family law cases in our county. It was great. I loved it. I did that for 18 years, but it really was a, a wonderful service to families in crisis and in need. What a great foundation. I mean, I, I, I was impressed. I just thought it's interesting all the ways that God leads you. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. It's, it's, it's fascinating. You then went on to do other things. You headed your community for a time. And then along comes network. 
tell me about what is network. I, I, I mean, I'm I'm a Canadian, okay? So I have oh, learned dear, about you. Yeah. I'm like I'm like the many who heard about nuns on the bus, but don't really know about network. So tell me about it. What what was that all about? Right. Well, in um, the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, the church leadership was talking about systemic change and the need for, you know, engaging the gospel in uh, changing our laws and and civil rights and those kinds of things. And so in uh, December of 1971, 47 Catholic sisters gathered in Washington, D.C. They were from various uh, religious communities. And they decided that at this three-day meeting that uh, what they we needed to do as women religious in the United States was to um, work on uh, changing the laws and on political engagement in Washington, D.C. And so uh, the question was, uh, what they said was, we don't need another organization. We need a network of how we can work together to impact uh, legislation, to lobby for change. And so they created this uh, lobby and opened the doors in April of 72 with uh, two sisters uh, from two different communities who were lent by their congregations to get it started. And over the years, we're almost 50 years old now, but we have worked on Capitol Hill. We're um, the old timers on Capitol Hill, like Senator Ted Kennedy and uh, Senator Dodd, a bunch of the 80s and 90s senators, uh, they called us the nuns lobby. And we're way more than, than nuns, uh, Catholic sisters. Um, our membership now is about 20, we have about 100,000 activists around the U.S. And so um, obviously that's way more than Catholic sisters. And uh, But what happened in 2012 at our 40th anniversary party of network, we said, well, how are we going to get our name out there? How are we going to let people know we've been working on Capitol Hill for 40 years impacting uh, social issues? And it was pretty funny. We had a lot of little ideas. And uh, the four days later, though, I say I uh, that the Vatican answered our prayer because <laughs> we wanted to get known. And what the Vatican did was in the uh, censure of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, they named Network, who at the time had nine full-time staff. I mean, can you believe that? The Vatican named Network with nine staff as being a bad influence on Catholic sisters because we worked too much on the issues of poverty and not enough on the issues of gay marriage and abortion. It was like, but but our focus, our mission is on poverty. So I sort of thought, oh, well, mission accomplished. But <laughs> um, but it was that notoriety that was really started with our healthcare work in 2010. That's really why we got named, because the bishops had opposed the legislation, and we were in favor of it, and we were a tipping point in getting the legislation passed. So the bishops were still mad at us. But we won and they lost. You have always been in the corner of the poor. You've always been in the corner of the people that aren't being spoken for. I mean, that was so evident as I read these books. But what a breakthrough. Yeah, this, uh, these radical feminist nuns. <laughs> I what, yeah. know, I know. But I guess they, they labeled you, I don't know. But at any rate, what an amazing miracle. 
How did you respond when when Vatican when the Vatican basically censured you? What what? How did that become, in a way, a bonus for you? Well, the the thing that I knew right away was that the leadership conference was formed by the Vatican, and they had to be very quiet and careful. But Network, our organization, we had no contact with the Vatican. We had no connection to the Vatican, so I could be public. And so what my prayer became was, how do we use this moment for mission? Because this was the opportunity to let people know we'd been working at Capitol Hill for 40 years. I mean, coming just four days after we asked the question, you, you know, you sort of got hit. We got hit over the head with the answers. So um, what I did was I did, you know, my good uh, political or, you know, uh, community organizing skills is going around talking to everybody. So I talked to all my colleagues, a lot of my colleagues in D.C., and convened this group of our secular colleagues who wanted to help and said, okay, here's what's going on. What do we do with this? We want to use this for mission, and, um, which was my prayer. And they said, well, you have to go on the road. You have to push back against the speaker, or he wasn't speaker at the time, Chairman Ryan's budget. And you have to lift up the works of Catholic sisters and you have to go on a bus, a wrapped bus <laughs> and okay, let's do it. And, um, but we had to raise the money and, um, we had the money pledged like in 10 days. I mean, the whole thing was a miracle. Wow. Um, and it really was a gift of the spirit. Uh, that first meeting with our secular colleagues, there were about 35 of us gathered in our little conference room and, it was like Pentecost. We were of one mind and one heart. And um, the Spirit just gave us the gift of what turned into be nuns on the bus. Nuns on the bus was never supposed to be the title. It was just a joke. You know, it was the joke title, but it's what <laughs> stuck. It was perfect. It's what all of us could remember. Nuns on the bus. Exactly. drive for exactly. faith, family, and fairness. I mean, it was brilliant. It was quite brilliant. And, and uh, it didn't really stop there. I mean, there, obviously this nuns on the bus was a miracle. Um, I'm absolutely amazed at, at how it's gone forward and what it's meant um, and how it's been a really not just a source of encouragement, a real inspiration around the world. I mean, really, it's it's said to Christians, what are you going to do? How are you going to take your faith out and, and be what Jesus has called us to be? And uh, you folks have done it in spades. I'm really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but but it's the thing about when you stay focused on mission, gifts are given. I mean, because it's, it's it's total gift. And I'm more aware of the political efforts that we have made. And so I'm focused on that political work. But you're right. The ripple impacts are um, amazing, surprising, awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the first year... Well, I guess it was in 2012. Uh, I didn't even know of this organization, Parliamentarians for Global Action. There's member, they are members of uh, various countries, parliaments, or legislative bodies have this organization, and they have an award they give every other year, and um, for defending democracy. Well, I got nominated and, and awarded their you know, Defender of Democracy Award by this international group. It was totally surprising to me. But the ultimate irony was it was given in Rome 
in December of 2012 at the height of the, the troubles with the Vatican for Catholic sisters in the U.S., but it was given in the uh, Italian Senate chambers. <laughs> it was like the ultimate irony. It was pretty funny. <laughs> well, I know that this wasn't about, um, from your perspective, it wasn't about a, a Opposing Catholicism, it was about actually calling forth people, engaging people, stopping us couch potatoes from being comfortable on the couches and really becoming active. Your work on health care reform was a gift to America. I mean, millions of people got health care because of the Affordable Care Act, and that was something you played an important part in. And I, I, I'm so grateful. I, I, uh, I thank you on behalf oh. of those that have health care and have you know, are so grateful for that. Um, before we go on, I, I'm going to kind of look at both books that you've written because they both inspire me. But I'd love to hear a little bit more. There wasn't just one road trip, was there? What were some of the other things that nuns on the bus took on? I love, for example, the the point at which you got people to sign the bus so that they felt that they oh, were I part of it. it. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that started in 2014. Although in 2000, well, okay, first of all, you need to know in 2012, I never thought there'd be another bus trip. I thought it was unique in all the world. And so we didn't even do an evaluation of our bus trip. It was pretty funny. But then in 2013, we were working on immigration reform and we knew we had to, as we said, throw everything we could at trying to get a new immigration law in the U.S. and especially getting it out of the Senate. So we did a bus trip in 2013 all on. Uh, for immigration reform, we went to the key states with Republicans that we either needed to support in their speaking out for immigration reform or encourage them to do it. And so it was it was a great trip. But then in between the bus trip in 2013 and 2014, somebody had given me the idea that people could sign the bus. And um, so in 2014, that was the first time it was on voter turnout, getting people committed to vote. And um, it, w- it was the first time people signed the bus. And the first person to sign the bus was who was then vice president. He's now our president, Joe Biden. And I explained to uh, Mr. Biden that there were going to be thousands of signatures. So he might not want to sign too big, but he was the very first one. Oh, God. oh, good, sister. That's great. Good, good. And so we had this ceremony. It was We had the cameras. We had the sisters. We had these flags on either side of the place he was going to sign. It was quite pomp and circumstance. It was very sweet. And so he comes off the bus with us, and I hand him the pen and one of these big black, you know, marker pens. And he takes it and he starts writing Joe, a big J O E. And then he starts on the B with the Biden, and you could see it dawn on him. And he leans over and he says, I didn't sign too big, did I? No, 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 it's just fine. <laughs> but what happened was that people then who knew he had signed the bus then tried signing like in the, the loop of the J or close to his name. And, and it really <laughs> became a gift because people wanted to be close. But the joy of signing the bus is the ritual that it's not just nuns on the bus by the end. Everybody's on the bus. And it's that shared commitment that we need in order to make change in our country. Because really, this is a crisis of community. How are we going to be a nation together? So it's it's been amazing gift. And um, so then, let's say 14, 15, we did a... 
um, Pope Francis came. So we did a bus trip in advance of Pope Francis. In 16, we did, uh, we went to the Republican convention and the Democratic convention and did a bus trip along the way, uh, trying, again, it was about um, bridge the divides, transform politics is what we were trying to do and talk to Republicans and talk to Democrats. I think it was so interesting how you were trying to get round tables of people that aren't being heard, that you're trying to hear the voices in between the Capitol and the the event, to, to really listen to people that really listen, period. Yeah. Exactly, because so often I think some of, at least in, in our country, some of the acting out, some of the craziness is people are not feeling heard. And so they, they're sort of like kids, you know. Kids keep acting out more and more to get their parents' attention. This is the old family law lawyer in me speaking <laughs> on that one. So um, what, we, what we were trying to do is to listen proactively and gather data and information and share it with legislators so it's grounded in the reality. Because too often, at least especially the one we were working on in 2019 and rolled out, and just before the pandemic in 2020 with the work in rural uh, parts of our country, just listening to rural America. And so often people in rural communities said that they felt dismissed, disregarded, uh, you know, demeaned by urban folks, that urban folks thought they were stupid and uneducated. And then I came back to D.C. from doing these rural roundhouses. I said, I was shocked. I said, oh, this is so painful. These people think that they're that city folks think they're, you know, uh, dumb and uneducated. <laughs> Some of my city friends said, well, they are. I was, uh-huh. I was blown away. Yeah. And But it's because of misperceptions. Yeah. It's also because people to leave rural America, to leave home, have to get kind of some energy up and off. It, it's an anger energy to get them to leave in order to get a better job or to, you yeah. know, a different, go to school, those kinds of things. So they have psychologically maintained this uh, justification for having love. And it's a complicated social reality, but if we can really listen to each other and what the needs are, we can find ways forward together. I mean, that's what we're about. You uh, have just very recently, within this past month, retired as the executive director of Network. this is a big next step in your life. What's on the horizon now? <laughs> oh, good question. Lots of people are asking that. They're giving me a lot of ideas. But right now, I'm on sabbatical. I have oh. a four-month sabbatical where oh. I am uh, just uh, – actually, the first month was about resting. I, I realized I was really tired. I'd been working really hard. And uh, so now I'm – vaccinated and able to visit some friends, which is fantastic. And uh, after over a year of being, um, you know, quarantined. So, um, and that's these four months of reading, pondering, seeing what's next. But I I say I have this virtual shoebox. And so people give me ideas and I put them in the virtual shoebox. And then come... uh, uh, August, then I'm going to open the shoebox and see what happens. We'll see. Stay tuned. 
I'll be I'll be active in something, but <laughs> right now I'm not sure what. We are so very, very, very grateful that you said yes to speaking at our Henry Nowen and the Art of Living conference. And honestly, it's one it's going to be one of the highlights, I'm sure. So I want to encourage everyone who's listening: you must sign up for the conference because this is going to be such a treat. Uh, I can tell you, this is somebody you want to hear and won't want to miss. Um, one of the things that has been fun for me in the last week has been to read Hunger for Hope, Prophetic Communities, Contemplation, and Common Good. It's a book uh, that you have written, and I got so much out of it. It starts with the contemplative, and I want to know why that's your base for action. Well, uh, the thing is that for me, this is all about listening to the Spirit. Like we were talking about, we're dedicated to the Holy Spirit. and Unless we engage in that contemplative art of listening, then we don't, I don't know where to move, how to go, or what's the next step. And I think too often we, in our, at least in the U.S. society, we're more about control and plans and, you know, uh, strategic planning strategy, get it done without doing the part of listening for the deeper good, the, the deeper needs. And so I uh, go along with, I think it was Carl Rahner who said that um, in the future, uh, Christians will be contemplative. So there won't be Christians at all. And it's really about this crisis of, of listening and being led. Um, so I think that we each need to develop a reflective practice. And ironically, what I find out is people find it scary to just stop and listen. Because we're so used to being filled with you know all kinds of noise and social devices and plans and busy and all this. Or they feel like they're not doing a good job of it. And so they're working at it. <laughs> like, Relax. It's okay. Just listen. Just take a deep breath and listen. And that listening then leads us to places we wouldn't go otherwise. It's interesting. What you remind me of is you remind me of how Henry entered into this. Henry Nowen, in that he was really drawn to the various... Uh, social justice responses, whether it was sojourners or it was protesting uh, nuclear uh, submarines or whatever, but in the midst of it, understanding how much we people needed to be grounded in something contemplative, something that would would hold them, that would, would, otherwise you can just burn out on the edges, I think. I love something you wrote here. Contemplative practice helps to ground me in the experience of the divine as creating us at every moment. I have learned that when I'm insecure, I'm more inclined to fight or get defensive. When I'm grounded in the deep listening of contemplative practice, I have no need for fear, only a need to connect. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and it's the the thing that I've learned is that the, um, how, how to say this, that it's that, effort at control, that effort at management, that effort at uh, thinking I'm in charge, that that's when fear rises because, 
we're not we're not built for that. But when we know that God is at the center of our lives, the divine is at the center of our lives. I don't even really like to use the word God because it it generates so many, you know, concept misconceptions. But mm-hmm. when the divine is at the center of our lives, then I'm not in charge. I'm I just need to do my part. And that for me is the freedom of the contemplative life. Just to know that I am a piece and I contribute my part and the, and all together we'll make it whole. Isn't that freeing? It's very freeing. You write, I believe that these times call for all of us to listen deeply to the world around us and let the divine flame up in our lives. Only the spirit alive in our midst can breathe over the chaos and draw out a new creation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in the U.S. at this point. Oh, my God, please. (laughs) Chaos of the new creation. We need it. Well, one of the things that comes up in this book is really... um, in a way, the the corrosive lie that the foundation of your nation is individualism. And quite frankly, that spirit hits many Western nations, probably many nations in the world, but that spirit of individualism. Could you talk a little bit about that as opposed to what you think is, in a way, the, the founding spirit of your nation that you need to return to? Right. Well, the the challenge is our wealth as a nation, has allowed individuals to think they can do it alone. So we all, I mean, we live in our individual houses, we do, you know, have our individual, uh, everything that we need is all about our little unit. And the fact is that if I use that as my um, measure of what's right, then I become protective of that and by setting up walls and being defensive then I am going to lash out if anybody threatens my little unit but the reality is uh, the way we talk about it within the Catholic tradition is about being uh, the mystical body we're one body as a as a whole entity is one body and so when I know I'm connected to you and we share responsibility for each other, that is immensely freeing and that I don't have to be defensive or protective. And much of the political divide right now in our country is those who don't know the community, the communal nature of the human species or of all of creation. They're busy fighting each other, wanting to protect tech mine and bravado about being the best and and source of racism and denigration of immigrants and all this other evil is because many people are busy protecting their own thing and they're frightened and so in that defensive posture they're going to lash out but if we are grounded in the contemplative truth that we're all connected, that's an entirely, I don't know if you can feel within yourself the difference of the relaxing, the, oh yeah, I don't have to protect my people because we are all in this together. I'll protect you, you protect me, we'll care for each other. What a liberating reality. It is. Uh, in, in one of the ways, it could be one of the things that would emerge from this time of COVID that 
has has in a sense shown us how interconnected we are, both for the negative and the positive, but the great reality that we've never had anything that so impacted the entire world and our right. neighborhoods and our countries and whatever. I mean, it it really is quite amazing. Um, you wrote something here, the old ways are not working. Something new needs to emerge. How can we hunger and thirst for justice sufficiently to create new ideas, new ways forward? We need a new vision. How can we find it amid the little sound bites and swirling chaos? I, I love the fact you have courage for the new and that you have hope for the new out of that leaning on and trusting the Holy Spirit to speak and to give you direction. Well, right, because it's been my experience over and over. <laughs> that, that's what's happened. So it's it's like I do have kind of some experience of it. But I think the piece for me that's so critical is this idea of hunger and the beatitude. So yeah. hunger and thirst for justice. What I what I realized is, or at least where I am right at this point, is that hunger and thirst, that means we really have to engage in the a visceral uh, quest for justice, not just for me and my friends, but for everyone. And that's why some of the racial justice reckoning in the United States right now and globally is so critically important is because we need to hunger and thirst. We need to admit the past and hunger and thirst for something new, for a new way of uh, acknowledging the dignity of all and making, ensuring that all can flourish. So the the effort at hunger and thirsting is i think that contemplative stance of nourishing that and something it becomes the ground for new seeds to sprout new ideas to come you talk about creating a community that nurtures a prophetic imagination we must touch the pain of the world and weep together I think that's wonderfully insightful about where we are. Right. But what happens is often, at least in the U.S. culture, is you touch the pain of the world and you want to manage it, you want to control it, you want to change it, you want to give people some pills to take it away. And rather, what what I think we're really called to is is letting our hearts be broken open so that we take in everyone. And it's that... Um, sometimes I sort of feel like we're, you know, we're walnuts and we got this hard shell and we got to break it open so that the we can flourish and be, uh, you know, feed others with who we are. And that requires breaking a shell. And some things that can break shells is being touched by other people. By their story. I'm curious if uh, Henry Nowen has been a, a, a useful resource in your life, a re- useful spiritual resource or ideas resource. Have, have you, uh, over the years, found Nowen's writing to be helpful? Well, um, I must say that his book, Wounded Healer, has been one that I have gone to many times um, because I think he's so clearly lays out that way of um letting our ministry come through even in our woundedness or acknowledging that as a an important vehicle for understanding and being connected in community 
And uh, so I remember reading it as a young sister, and I have gone back to it over the years as a, a critical piece. Um, I'm forever grateful for that, that contribution. Right now, what, what stirs me more, right, I have to say, are Pope Francis's writings right now, which really surprised me, because usually Vatican documents are so boring. Uh, they're important, but they're boring. But Pope Francis writes in such an accessible way that uh, I find it really exciting to um, engage his insights. But they are, um, in, in that humanness, it's also quite akin to some of uh, Henry Nowen's writings also about taking our um, frailties, our, our failings, and making letting those be gateways to something more. It is interesting that that uh, our wounds don't prevent us from helping. Our wounds, in fact, enable us, or our wounds become a connection to others in, in a really deep way. Solidarity is fueled by hearts that have been broken open. That's something that you wrote and I was touched by. One of the things I haven't mentioned, and I, I want our audience to know, you're a poet. You're a wonderful poet. There's <laughs> lovely poetry in your books. And and I was so delighted to discover that. It was kind of a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, I don't know if we could get you to share a poem, if you have one that you would be willing to share. Uh, I know I, I found a few that I thought were quite wonderful. So if you're at all interested, I would suggest them. But it, have you got a poem that you'd like to share? Well, there's only one that I know by heart, and I don't have my, my uh, book in front of me. But there's one that I do know by heart that that I really um, appreciate, and it's called Loaves and Fish. Oh, please share. And it's the, the story, just so everybody knows, is set in um, the situation where all these people have followed Jesus. Remember, we remember the story, and they're hungry, and the apostles say, send them back to town, they're going to get hungry. And Jesus says, no, feed them yourselves. And good old Peter says, oh, all we've got are, you know, a couple of day-old loaves of bread and a couple of stinky fish. What's that among so many? So Jesus has everybody sit down in groups of 50, every the community organizer, and then he blesses the bread, the fish, hands it out. And it says 5,000 men were fed, not counting the women and children. So there's a whole other story to that. I won't go into that. But this is the poem that goes with that. And... Um, uh, loaves and fish. I always joked that the miracle of loaves and fish was sharing. The women always knew this. But in this moment of need and notoriety, I ache, tremble, almost weep at folks so hungry, malnourished, faced with spiritual famine of epic proportions. My heart aches with their need. Apostle-like I whine. What are we among so many? The consistent 2,000-year-old ever-new response is this. Blessed and broken, you are enough. I savor the blessed, cower at the broken, and pray to be enough. You know, I, I marked this poem and said, ask her to read this one. So that is a treat. Because <laughs> I loved Perfect. it too. Perfect. Oh, that's beautiful. That's just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Really lovely. Can I ask, um, 
here you are. Oh, there was a wonderful line I came across. I'm, I'm going to throw it at you. Uh, the contemplative stance allows you to be an equal opportunity annoyer. I thought that was a terrific <laughs> self-concept, an equal opportunity annoyer. Obviously, you've had the energy and the, and the feistiness to say, I will not be quiet over things that are in unjust and which uh, hurt the poorest of the poor and hurt the people that don't have a voice. I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, right. And and what's important to remember is in this struggle for justice, no one person, no one political party, no one group has, uh, you know, the totality of the truth. And so that's why it's really important to keep pushing. Like the other day, I got involved in trying to uh, encourage the Biden administration to ensure that the vaccine patents were waived during COVID-19 so that everyone can get access to the vaccine. And so while um, often many of the things that we worked for, uh, President Biden supports, it's not always 100 percent. So, uh, but we were really grateful that he then came out in favor of the waiver of the, of the uh, patents, but uh, during the time of COVID, but we were annoying. So <laughs> I am an equal opportunity annoyer. Sure. <laughs> you choose to walk toward trouble and not walk away. I, I could see that throughout your books and see it as a principle that that is a choice to make that, uh, you know. In the power of the Holy Spirit, walk towards it, not away from it. Well done. Right, because, well, thank you. But but when you look at the gospel and how Jesus, Jesus always walked toward trouble. He walked toward Jerusalem. He walked towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He walked towards those who were, uh, you know, ill or the lepers, the outcasts. He, he embraced those in the midst of either power or struggle or hurt. And that's what we're called to do. So it's just being gospel-based. <laughs> just being gospel-based, yes, absolutely. Uh, there is a line that came up, and it's sort of the last thing that I, I was struck by. It was practicing holy curiosity is one small step toward weaving the fabric of our society. Depo- democracy depends on the exchange of ideas, and it's true creating roundtables, creating places where we listen to each other, where we hear the people that we've not been listening to, whether they're people of a different background or race or ethnicity or whatever, that we have to have a holy curiosity uh, to create a new kind of society. Absolutely. And there is one virtue that goes along with holy curiosity, which is uh, once you've exercised holy curiosity, then the virtue that goes with it is sacred gossip, is that we need to share with each other the stories of things that we've discovered. And for me, it's a variety of stories of people that I, you know, we've heard around the country. And one of our rural roundtables, this woman came in, and she was an older woman, and she says to me, I looked you up on the internet, and I don't believe, I don't think I agree with you on anything. And I said, oh, good, we'll have a great conversation. And she was pretty defensive. But, you know, by the end of an hour and a half conversation, we were really touched and connected. And she started talking about her two sons who had uh, committed suicide and what anguish it was in her life and how she felt so alone in that. And 
I thought, oh my heavens, such little gift of listening allows for the sharing of such pain. And isn't that what we hunger for, to be connected in those intimate ways? So uh, what I realized is by my, our being curious about her insights welcomed her into this group. And then I have a responsibility to continue to multiply that and encourage others to do it so that we can care for the 100%. We need to care for each other. I want to encourage our listeners to get these two books. I have really enjoyed them. The uh, A Nun on the Bus and Hunger for Hope. And they are laced with stories that you have picked up and valued. It's not just about this uh, feisty journey for economic and social justice. It's really about seeing people on the journey and telling their stories and sharing them. It, it, it is... It breaks you open. It really does. And I I thank you for your sharing. I'm so very grateful that you're going to be part of Henry Nouwen and the Art of Living Conference. I know that it's going to be a highlight. And I I thank you for saying yes to that in the midst of all your sabbatical rest. It's really something very special for all of us. Uh, Thank you for being with me today. You're a joy and an inspiration. I've got to say that. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great to have the conversation. I am looking forward to the conference. It'll be great. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I bet this conversation with Sister Simone Campbell has inspired and ignited a fire in you. I want to invite you to join us for our upcoming conference called Henry Nouwen and the Art of Living. Sister Simone is one of our keynote speakers, and you won't want to miss her. We also have a wonderful lineup of other speakers. Roberto Goizueta, Sister Helen Prejean, Father Ron Rollheiser, Dr. Vanessa White, Reverend Marjorie Thompson and Chris Pritchett. There'll be links on our website so you can register for this important 25th anniversary celebration that we are holding online on June 4th and 5th. I hope you'll join us. For more resources related to today's podcast, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, book suggestions, and links to sign up for the conference or to sign up to receive our free daily Henry Now and Meditations. Thanks for listening. Until next time.